Chapter Eleven, Part Two of The Curious Lore of Precious Stones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avayi in February two thousand nineteen. The Curious Lore of Precious Stones by George Frederick Kuntz. Chapter Eleven, Part Two diamond of the many medicinal virtues attributed to the diamond one of the most noteworthy is that of an antidote for poisons strangely enough the belief in its efficacy in this respect was coupled with the idea that the stone in itself was a deadly poison the origin of this latter fancy must be sought in the tradition that the place wherein the diamonds were generated in the land where it is six months day and six months night was guarded by venomous creatures who in passing over the stones were wounded by the sharp points of the crystals and thus imbued the stones with some of their venom the attribution of curative properties in case of poisoning arose from association of ideas the lapidario of alfonso x recommends the diamond for diseases of the bladder it adds however that this stone should be used only in desperate cases the diamond was also believed to afford protection from plague or pestilence and a proof of its powers in this direction was found in the fact that the plague first attacked the poorer classes sparing the rich who could afford to adorn themselves with diamonds naturally in common with other precious stones this brilliant gem was supposed to cure many diseases marbodas tells us that it was even a cure for insanity in the babylonian talmud we read of a marvelous precious stone belonging to abraham this was perhaps a diamond or possibly a pearl the accounts vary and the same word is often used to designate precious stone and pearl the following version represents it to be a diamond r simeon ben johanan said a diamond was hanging on abraham's neck and when a sick man looked upon it he was cured and when abraham passed away the lord sealed it in the planet of the sun the hindus believed that it was extremely dangerous to use diamonds of inferior quality for curative purposes as they would not only fail to remedy the disease for which they were prescribed but might cause lameness jaundice pleurisy and even leprosy as to the use of diamonds of good quality very explicit directions are given on some day regarded as auspicious for the operation the stone was to be dipped in the juice of the kantakara solanium jakiri and subjected for a whole night to the heat of a fire made by dried pieces of the dung of a cow or of a buffalo in the morning it was to be immersed in cow's urine and again subjected to fire these processes were to be repeated for seven days at the end of which term the diamond could be regarded as purified after this the stone was to be buried in a paste of certain leguminous seeds mixed with azafoetida and rock salt herein it was to be heated twenty-one successive times when it would be reduced to ashes if these ashes were then dissolved in some liquid the potion would conduce to longevity general development of the body strength energy 
beauty of complexion, and happiness, giving an adamantine strength to the limbs. An Austrian nobleman, who for a long time had not been able to sleep without having terrible dreams, was immediately cured by wearing a small diamond set in gold on his arm, so that the stone came in contact with his skin. The fact that in this case, as in many others, the stone was required to touch the skin, proves that the effect supposed to be produced was not altogether magical, but in the nature of a physical emanation from the stone to the body of the wearer. We are told that when Pope Clement VII was seized by his last illness in 1534, his physicians resorted to powders composed of various precious stones. In the space of fourteen days they are asserted to have given the Pope forty thousand ducats worth of these stones, a single dose costing as much as three thousand ducats. The most costly remedy of all was a diamond administered to him at Marseille. Unfortunately, this lavish expenditure was of no avail. Indeed, according to our modern science, the remedies might have sufficed to end the Pope's life, without the help of his disease. The old fancy that the diamond grew dark in the presence of poison is explained by the Italian physician Gonelli as caused by minute and tenuous particles which emanated from the poison, impinged upon the surface of the diamond, and, unable to penetrate its dense mass, accumulated on the surface, thus producing a superficial discoloration. The diamond, being a cold substance, may have condensed moisture from the body, and the one suffering from the poison may have emitted exudations. But this elaborate explanation of a phenomenon which never existed, except in the imagination of those who related it, is characteristic of Gonelli, who was always ready to elucidate in some similar way any of the marvels recounted in regard to precious stones. Emerald the emerald was employed as an antidote for poisons and for poisoned wounds, as well as against demoniacal possession. If worn on the neck, it was said to cure the semitertian fever and epilepsy. The use of the emerald to rest and relieve the eye is the only remedial use of a precious stone mentioned by Theophrastus in his treatise on gems, written in the 3rd century BC. Alluding to its powers as an antidote for poisons, Rueus asserts that if the weight of eighty barley corns of its powder were given to one dying from the effects of poison, the dose would save his life. The Arabs prized emeralds highly for this purpose, and Abenzoar states that, having once taken a poisonous herb, he placed an emerald in his mouth and applied another to his stomach, whereupon he was entirely cured. A certain cure for dysentery also was to wear an emerald suspended so that it touched the abdomen, and to place another emerald in the mouth. Michele Pascali, a learned Spanish physician of the sixteenth century, declared that he had effected a cure of the disease by means of the emerald in the case of Juan de Mendoza, a Spanish grandee, and Wolfgang Gabelkover of Kalf in Württemberg writing in 1603, asserts that he had often tested the virtues of the emerald in cases of dysentery, and with an invariable success. 
it speaks not a little for the beauty of the emerald that so good a judge of precious stones as pliny should have pronounced this gem to be the only one that delighted the eye without fatiguing it adding that when the vision was wearied by gazing intently at other objects it gained renewed strength by viewing an emerald so general in the early centuries of our era was the persuasion that the pure green hue of emeralds aided the eyesight that gem engravers are said to have kept some of them on their work-tables so as to be able to look at the stones from time to time and thus relieve the eye-strain caused by close application to their delicate task Sellers says that a cataplasm made of emeralds was of help to those suffering from leprosy he adds that if pulverized and taken in water they would check hemorrhages they were especially commended for use as amulets to be hung on the necks of children as they were believed to ward off and prevent epilepsy if however the violence of the disease was such that it could not be overcome by the stone the latter would break hermes trismegistus says the emerald cures ophthalmia and hemorrhages the great hermes must have had a special preference for this stone since his treatise on chemistry pericemeas is said to have been found inscribed on an emerald by the hindu physicians of the thirteenth century the emerald was considered to be a good laxative it cured dysentery diminished the secretion of bile and stimulated the appetite in short it promoted bodily health and destroyed demoniacal influences in the curious phrase of the school the emerald was cold and sweet teifashi twelve forty two a d believed that the emerald was a cure for hemoptysis and for dysentery if it were worn over the liver of the person affected to cure gastric troubles the stone was to be laid upon the stomach furthermore the wearer was protected from the attacks of venomous creatures and evil spirits were driven from the place where emeralds were kept the direction to place the stone on the affected part a recommendation often met with in the treatises on the therapeutic use of ornamental stones shows that these were believed to send forth emanations of subtle power probably enough the brilliant play of reflected light which proceeds from many of these gems suggested the idea that they radiated a certain curative energy this theory need not surprise us for although it is altogether fanciful in the case of the diamond ruby emerald etc the newly discovered substance radium really possesses the active properties ascribed by old writers to precious stones jade a stone the therapeutic quality of which was specialized is the jade or nephrite strange to say although there are very few places where this mineral can now be obtained the chief sources of supply being the province of khotan in turkestan and new zealand in prehistoric times the stone must have been found in many different localities since axe-heads and other artifacts of jade have been discovered in many lands both of the old and new world when the spaniards discovered and explored the southern part of the american continent they came across numerous native ornaments and amulets made of jade jadeite and brought many of these with them to europe 
the name jade is derived from the spanish designation piedra de ijada meaning literally stone of the flank which is said to have been bestowed on the stone because the indians used it for all diseases of the kidneys the name nephrite owes its origin to the same idea in ancient times jade appears to have been looked upon as a great aid in parturition and many ingenious conjectures have been advanced as to the connection between this belief and the form of some of the prehistoric objects made of this material whether the spaniards really learned from the indians that the stone was especially adapted to cure renal diseases or whether they only suggested this special and peculiar virtue in order to give an enhanced value to their jade ornaments is a question not easily answered an early notice of jade as a remedial agent appears in sir walter raleigh's account of his travels in guiana treating of a people of amazons said to dwell in the interior of the country raleigh says these amazons have likewise great store of these plates of gold which they recover by exchange chiefly for a kind of green stone which the spaniards call piedras ijadas and we use for spleen stones and for the disease of the stone we also esteem them of these i saw diverse in guiana and commonly every king or cacique hath one which their wives for the most part wear and they esteem them as great jewels by the middle of the seventeenth century the curative powers of jade for the various forms of calculi was very generally admitted a singular instance is offered us in one of Voiture's letters. He was a great sufferer from the stone, and he had received, from a Mademoiselle Poulet, a beautiful jade bracelet. Gracefully acknowledging the receipt of this peculiar gift, he expresses himself in the following frank way, a mixture of indelicacy and gallantry that seems strange to us. Quote, if the stones you have given me do not break mine, they will at least make me bear my sufferings patiently, and it seems to me that I ought not complain of my colic, since it has procured me this happiness. End quote. The name used for jade by voiture, Le Jade, supplied a missing link in the derivation of our name jade from the Spanish Ijada. When the lady's gift was received by voiture, some friends chanced to be present and they were disposed to regard it as a token of love until he assured them that it was only a remedy it appears that mademoiselle paulet was a fellow sufferer and alluding to this voiture writes on this occasion the jade had for you an effect you did not expect from it and its virtue defended your own renal calculi and poetry do not seem to have much in common but the following lines freely rendered from an old italian poem on the subject by siri de perse show that even this unpromising theme is susceptible of poetic treatment other white stones serve to mark happy days but mine do mark days full of pain and gloom to build a palace or a temple fair stones should be used but mine do serve to wreck the fleshy temple of my soul well do i know that death doth wet his glaive upon these stones and that the marble white that grows in me is there to form my tomb as jade was and still is the most favoured stone in china 
although never found within the boundaries of china proper it was very naturally accorded wonderful medical virtues an old chinese encyclopedia the work of li she chan and presented by him to the emperor wan li of the ming dynasty in fifteen ninety six contains many interesting notices of jade when reduced to a powder of the size of rice grains it strengthened the lungs the heart and the vocal organs and prolonged life more especially if gold and silver were added to the jade powder another and certainly a pleasanter way of absorbing this precious mineral was to drink what was enthusiastically called the divine liquor of jade to concoct this elixir equal parts of jade rice and dew water were put into a copper pot and boiled the resultant liquid being carefully filtered this mixture was said to strengthen the muscles and make them supple to harden the bones to calm the mind to enrich the flesh and to purify the blood whoever took it for a long space of time ceased to suffer from either heat or cold and no longer felt either hunger or thirst galen born circa 130 a.d wrote thus of the green jasper some have testified to a virtue in certain stones and this is true of the green jasper that is to say this stone aids the stomach and navel by contact and some therefore set the stone in rings and engrave on it a dragon surrounded by rays according to what king nechepsos has transmitted to posterity in the fourteenth book of his works indeed i myself have thoroughly tested this stone for i hung a necklace composed of them about my neck so that they touched the navel and i received not less benefit from them than i would had they borne the engraving of which nechepsos wrote ruby sanskrit medical literature as represented by naharari a physician of kashmir who wrote in the thirteenth century finds in the ruby a valuable remedy for flatulency and biliousness moreover aside from these special uses an elixir of great potency could be made from rubies by those who properly understood the employment of precious stones in the compounding of medicines this famous ruby elixir may have had little in common with the stone except its colour as such remedies were generally said to have been made by some secret and mysterious process in the course of which all material evidence of the presence of any precious stone or stones completely disappeared sapphire one of the earliest specimens of english literature william langley's vision of william concerning piers the ploughman written about thirteen seventy seven contains a mention of the sapphire as a cure for disease i looked on my left half as the lady me thought and was war of a woman worthily ye clothed perfiled with pallure the finest upon earth ye crowned with a crown the king hath none better fetislich her fingers were fretted with gold wire and thereon red rubies as red as any glade and diamonds of dearest price and double manier sapphires orientals and eulogies and unimus to destroy 
Among the rich gifts offered at the shrine of St. Erkinwald in Old St. Paul's was a sapphire given in 1391 by Richard Preston, a citizen and grocer of London. He stipulated that the stone should be kept at the shrine for the cure of diseases of the eyes, and that proclamation should be made of its remedial virtues. St. Erkinwald was the son of Offa, king of the East Saxons, and was converted to Christianity by Melitus, the first bishop of London. In 675 AD, he himself became bishop of London, being the third to attain that rank after the death of Melitus. His body was interred in the cathedral, and his shrine, which was richly embellished during the reign of Edward III, 1327-1377, received many valuable donations. The usefulness of the sapphire as an eye-stone for the removal of all impurities or foreign bodies from the eye is noted by Albertus Magnus, who writes that he had seen it employed for this purpose. He adds that when a sapphire was used in this way, it should be dipped in cold water both before and after the operation. This was probably not so much to make the stone colder to the touch as to cleanse it, certainly a very necessary proceeding when the same stone was used by many persons suffering from contagious diseases of the eyes. Richard Preston's sapphire appears to have been only one of a class regarded as having special virtue to cure diseased eyes, as is shown by the existence of various other similar sapphires in different parts of Europe. It is not very easy to determine the precise reason, if there be one, which rendered any single sapphire more useful than another in this respect. An entry in the inventory of Charles V notes, An oval oriental sapphire for touching the eyes set in a band of gold. Possibly the fact that a particular gem of this kind was used remedially, and was not set for wear as an ornament, may have been the only cause for a belief in its special virtue. That the sapphire should have been regarded as especially valuable for the cure of eye diseases serves to illustrate the wide-reaching and persistent influence of Egyptian thought, and the curious transformations through which an originally reasonable idea may pass in the course of time. We have already noted that the sapphire of the ancients was our lapis lazuli, and in the Abas papyrus, lapis lazuli is given as one of the ingredients of an eyewash. This ingredient is believed to have originally been the oxide of copper, sometimes called lapis armenus, a material possessing marked astringent properties, and which might be used to advantage in certain morbid conditions of the eye. Lapis lazuli, another blue stone, was later substituted because of its greater intrinsic value, its similarity of color rendering it equally efficacious according to primitive ideas on this subject. When, however, in medieval times the name sapphire came to signify the blue corundum gem known to us by this designation, the special curative virtues of the lapis lazuli were transferred to this still more valuable stone. The proper method of applying a sapphire to cure plague boils is given at some length by Van Helmont. A gem of a fine, deep color was to be selected and rubbed gently and slowly around the pestilential tumor. 
during and immediately after this operation the patient would feel but little alleviation but a good while after the removal of the stone favorable symptoms would appear provided the malady were not too far advanced this van helmont attributes to a magnetic force in the sapphire by means of which the absent gem continues to extract the pestilential virulency and contagious poison from the infected part topaz the use of a topaz to cure dimness of vision is strongly recommended by saint hildegard to attain the desired end the stone was to be placed in wine and left there for three days and three nights when retiring to sleep the patient should rub his eyes with the moistened topaz so that this moisture lightly touched the eyeball after the stone had been removed the wine could be used for five days a roman physician of the fifteenth century was reputed to have wrought many wonderful cures of those stricken by the plague through touching the plague sores with a topaz which had belonged to two popes clement the sixth and gregory the second the fact that this particular topaz had been in the hands of two supreme pontiffs must have added much to the faith reposed in the curative powers of the stone by those upon whom it was used and this faith may really have helped to hasten their recovery bloodstone a historical instance of the use of the bloodstone to check a hemorrhage is recorded in the case of giorgio vasari fifteen fourteen to fifteen seventy eight the author of the lives of the italian painters of the renaissance period on a certain occasion when the painter luca signorelli fourteen thirty nine to fifteen twenty one was placing one of his pictures in a church at arezzo vasari who was present was seized with a violent hemorrhage and fainted away without a moment's hesitation signorelli took from his pocket a bloodstone amulet and slipped it down between vasari's shoulder-blades the hemorrhage is said to have ceased immediately the bloodstone was used as a remedy by the indians of new spain and monardes notes that they often cut the material into the shape of hearts this seems a very appropriate form for an object used to check hemorrhages the best effect was attained when the stone was first dipped in cold water and then held by the patient in his right hand of course the application of any cold object would serve to congeal the blood but the connection with the heart vanishes in the direction to place the stone in the right hand monardes states that both spaniards and indians used the bloodstone in this way the franciscan friar bernardino de sahagun a missionary to the mexican indians shortly after the spanish conquest writes that in fifteen seventy six he cured many natives who were at the point of death from hemorrhage a result of the plague by causing them to hold in the hand a piece of bloodstone by this means he claims to have saved many lives robert boyle in his essay about the origin and virtues of gems london sixteen seventy two pages one hundred seventy seven to seventy eight tells of a gentleman of his acquaintance who was of a complexion extraordinary sanguine and was much afflicted with bleeding of the nose a gentlewoman sent to him a bloodstone directing him to wear it suspended from his neck 
and from the time he put it on he was no longer troubled with his malady it recurred however if he removed the stone when boyle objected that this might be a result of imagination his friend disposed of his objection by relating the instance of a woman to whom the stone had been applied when she was unconscious from loss of blood nevertheless as soon as it touched her the flow of blood was checked boyle states that this stone did not seem to him to resemble a true bloodstone it may have been that the cold of the stone congealed the blood or that the flow was checked by exhaustion end of chapter 11 part 2 end of the curious lore of precious stones by george frederick kuntz